You guys can turn to Romans chapter 8. We'll be finishing up Romans 8 today. For those of you who've been asking and following along, I did have my last surgery, went in the doctor. Uh, it's going to be another 12 months before they know if the surgery works. So I still can't see you guys over here, but I trust you're there. Uh, so it's going to be a while before they know. That's all right. Romans 8. This morning we're going to finish what we started two weeks ago. We're looking at the last passage in Romans 8. It's a passage that is all about security. Now, interestingly, after I preached two weeks ago and and started this sermon series on security, I had an interesting firsthand illustration of our human need for security. I took my daughter to the park. Luke and Gracie and I went to the park, and this is my daughter, Gracie. She's two and a half. We got to the park, and Gracie was enthralled by the grass. The grass happened to be seeding, so it had all these little seeds on it. And so Gracie spent the whole time collecting grass and making a, a big pile on a bench. She loved this grass. It's ironic to me that the city spends thousands of dollars on high-end playground equipment and all my kids want is the grass. She loved it. She had so much fun gathering and collecting these grass seeds. So she's having a great time until these older kids show up. These older kids come to the playground and Gracie becomes afraid. You can see it on her face instantly. She becomes afraid that the kids are going to steal her grass. And so she begins to say to her daddy over and over again, no, take my grass, no, take my grass. And I assured my daughter, sweetie, they don't want your grass. But she didn't believe me. This is pretty awesome grass after all. So she is just really being consumed by fear and I don't want my daughter to be afraid. So I comfort Gracie. I say to her, I promise, sweetie, daddy will sit right here next to your pile of grass, I will protect your grass. I won't let the kids take it. Now, Gracie liked that promise, uh, but she had a hard time trusting me. Daddy's old. He only has one working eye. What if the kids steal in on my bad side? (laughs) It'd take all that grass. Gracie couldn't trust me, and so she literally spent the whole time that those kids were there huddled over her pile of grass, afraid that they were going to take it. She couldn't enjoy the playground. She couldn't enjoy life. She couldn't have fun playing with the kids because she was paralyzed by fear. She was afraid of losing something precious. Well, that's human nature. God designed us to need security. After our basic biological necessities like air, water, food, our greatest need is for security. God designed us to seek security. If we are living in constant fear and worry, we will be unhealthy. You can't live a whole, rich, healthy life if you are consumed by fear. God designed you to need security. Now, as we talked about two weeks ago, fortunately, even though you cannot find the security you need in the things of this world, you can find it in the promises of God. The promises of God, that is your one and only place to find absolute lasting security because God alone has the power, the strength, the wisdom to overcome the dangers and insecurities of life in this fallen world. He's the only one who can give you security. His promises are the only thing you can absolutely bank on. The promises of God are the only thing that won't let you down in life. And so two weeks ago, we began to discover three promises of God to us here at the end of Romans chapter eight. And let me just refresh your memory for a moment. We say the first two promises two weeks ago. Uh, The first promise was found in verse 28. In verse 28, God promised, I will use everything for your good. That's a promise that God makes to all believers. 
This is true for all believers. It's a promise without exception. Things that are big, things that are small, things that are good, things that are bad. Everything God promises to use in your life for your ultimate good, and Paul defined good, your ultimate good is to be made like Jesus Christ, to grow to be more and more like Jesus. God promises, I will waste nothing that happens to you. I will use everything in your life to grow you to be more like Jesus. That was his first promise. His second promise found in verses 29 and 30, God promises to finish what he has started in us. God promises to finish the process of salvation. If God chose you in eternity past, which you know he did if you believe. If you are a believer, then he chose you in eternity past. If he chose you in eternity past, then he promises to glorify you in eternity future. It's guaranteed. So those were his first two promises in this passage that we looked at last week, or two weeks ago. This week, we're going to finish the passage by getting the third promise. Third and last promise here in Romans 8, uh, God reveals to us in verses 31 through 39, where God promises to all believers, I will allow nothing to separate us. That's God's promise to you if you are a believer in verses 31 through 39. God promises that nothing will ever come between you and him. Nothing will ever separate you or drive you apart. Now Paul reveals that promise through a series of questions and answers. Questions and answers that give proof to that promise, to that assertion. So I want to spend our morning looking at these questions and answers that Paul gives us. And the first question is found in verse 31. The first question and answer right here in the first verse of our passage. Look with me at verse 31. Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? That's the question and answer in one. Question is, if God is for us, who is against us? Who can stand against us? The idea here is, who can threaten you? What enemy can threaten your security? That's what Paul is asking. What enemy can separate you from God? And Paul's answer is implied right here in the verse. His answer is no one. No enemy can separate you. No enemy can get between you and God. Now, uh, Paul's point here, why is that? Why is it that no enemy can separate us from God? It's not that we don't have enemies. You do. Paul is assuming that we have lots of enemies. We do. We have lots of human enemies who wish to do us harm. But far worse, we have demonic enemies. Satan and the fallen angels who are aligned with him. They desire to do us harm. They are dangerous. They are wise. They are much more powerful than us. And yet Paul concludes that no enemy can separate you from God because, reason number one, God is with you. God is for you, literally in Greek. God is on your side. He's on your team. God is on your team. Now, these enemies that stand against us, Satan and his demonic forces, they are powerful, but Paul wants us to understand and remember, as powerful as Satan is, he's still a created thing. Satan is not a god. Satan is actually nothing compared to God. Satan is a created being. He is dependent upon God for existence, just like you are. Often, Hollywood in the movies portrays God and Satan as if they were matched opponents, locked in some kind of eternal struggle. No, they're not. Satan is nothing compared to God. He's not even an ant compared to God. Satan has never leveled a legitimate threat to God's throne because Satan is a creature. 
and God is not. God is infinitely greater than Satan. As a result, if God is on your side, which he is, then you need never fear Satan or any other enemy. No one could ever harm you because God is for you. He's on your side. Reminds me of this episode from West Wing. My wife and I love West Wing um, where President Bartlett is playing a game of pickup basketball against his younger staff members and he's losing badly because he's old and so uh, he's winded and he's worn out uh, and they are just running all around him and they're beginning to make fun of him and give him a hard time. Things are really going downhill for the president until this black car pulls up. Secret Service car pulls up and out steps a really tall man, Juwan Howard. In real life, he plays for the Miami Heat. And in this story, the president had appointed him to some council just so he could play on his team. The guy's a ringer. And as soon as he steps on the basketball court, the game's over because no one can score against him. He just cleans up. And so President Bartlett cruises to an easy victory on the back of a ringer. Well, in your battle with Satan and his forces, you have a ringer, God himself. And as powerful as your enemies are, they are no match for the guy in your court. Almighty God, you cruise to an easy victory on the back of a ringer. No one can stand against God. Nothing can. And so because God is on your side, because he's on your team, no enemy can threaten you. But Paul goes further. He gives us a second reason why we never need fear any opposition. In verse 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Here's Paul's logic. Here's what Paul is saying. We need never fear any enemy because God has already given us what is most precious to him. God has already sacrificed what is most precious to God, his son, the infinitely most valuable thing that God possesses. He has already paid the price of his son for you. So how can you not count on God to give you the rest of what you need in life to weather the attacks of your enemies? The logic is, is like this. It's as if you went out and bought a Tiffany diamond engagement ring. You drop 10 grand on this perfect ring. Let me ask you, do you think that they're going to charge you for the box? No, I, they're not going to charge you for the box. They're going to throw in the box for free because it's nothing compared to the ring. The box costs nothing compared to the value of the ring. Same idea here. God has already paid the infinite price for you. He's already sacrificed his own son, more valuable by an infinite margin than the entirety of the universe combined. He's already given his son for you, so how can you not count on him to give you the rest of what you need to make it through this life? God's not gonna hold out on you now. In other words, there's never gonna come a day when you do something so bad, so evil, that God decides to cut his losses and run. No, he's already invested too deeply in you. God's all in on you. He's already paid the ultimate infinite price for you. He's not gonna bail on you now. You can count on him. He will give everything you need to make it through this life because everything else you need in life is nothing compared to what he's already paid. It's cheap, it's easy compared to the price he has already paid on your behalf through his son. So Paul concludes, uh, God is saying, he's promising, I will allow nothing to separate us. First, he's going to allow no enemy, no opposition to separate you from God. 
Now Paul moves to the second question. Look with me in verse 33. Second question and answer, verses 33 to 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Paul's asking, who can bring a charge against God's elect? This is courtroom language. God is picturing you standing in a courtroom, God's courtroom, the courtroom of the universe. You are there, and Paul is asking, who can bring a charge against you? Who can be your prosecutor? Who can effectively get you convicted? His answer is, his conclusion is, no one. No accusation, no criminal charge could ever be leveled against God's elect. Now, uh, let's ask ourselves, who is this hypothetical accuser? Paul doesn't name him. Who is it standing in God's courtroom that is leveling charges and condemnation against you? It certainly could be Satan. Satan is often called the accuser in scripture. In Revelation 12, 10, he's, uh, it's said of Satan, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan loves to accuse you to God. He loves to point out your faults, your sins, your missteps to God and to you. He loves to do that. Um, it could be Satan, but I think it could also be us. I, I don't know about you, but often I'm my own worst critic. Often, I'm the harshest person on myself. When, when I sin, especially when I do something I'm really not proud of, I'm sure Satan's pointing that out to God, but no more than I am. I dwell on that sin. I know that I should simply confess that sin and enjoy God's forgiveness. Jesus already died for it, but I have a hard time doing that. Instead, I take myself to court. I, I stand in as my own prosecutor, and I sit there and replay over and over again my sin, and I wallow in my guilt, and I feel shame over it. I prosecute myself before God, but Paul wants me to understand whether it's Satan or me leveling a charge against myself, nothing can stick. No charge can stick to me. No one can prosecute me. No one can condemn me. No one can convict me, not even me. Why? Why is it that I am immune to any charges? Paul gives us two answers that focus on the two other people in this hypothetical courtroom. Because it's not just me and Satan. It's two other people there. First of all, there's God. God the Father, who is judge. God the Father is the almighty, righteous, all-knowing, wise judge. And Paul tells us the judge has already rendered his verdict. At some point in the past, when I believed the gospel, the judge's gavel came down on the bench and he rendered his verdict and it was in my favor. God, the judge, has already justified me. He has already declared me to be right in the eyes of the court for all time, for all eternity. God, the Father's already made up his mind about you. He's already delivered his verdict concerning you. So for someone to effectively prosecute you, what do they have to be able to do? to overturn the verdict of the judge. That's how law works. You gotta overturn the decree of the judge and no one can do that to God. No one has the power to overturn God's decision. He's already hit the bench with his gavel. It's done. God has found in your favor so no one can prosecute you. No one can charge you or condemn you, not Satan, not yourself. That's Paul's first line of thought, his line of reasoning. His second, he looks at the, the other person in the courtroom. It says, me, there's Satan, there's God the Father, and there's also God the Son. 
And he's right next to me. God the Son is my defense attorney. That's what it means when Paul says that Jesus intercedes for us. Literally, he pleads our case before the judge. Jesus is your defense attorney in life. Every day, all day long, Jesus stands next to you pleading your case to the judge. And notice what Paul says in verse 34. Your defense attorney pleads your case not based on your merit, Hey, he's a pretty okay guy. Look at this good thing he did. No, he pleads based on his own merit. Every time you are accused of something, Jesus stands up and points to himself and says, yeah, but I already died for that. I already rose from the dead for that. I already took care of that. Every time Satan points out, look what he just did. Look at how bad that is. Jesus just stands up and says, yeah, but I already paid for that. Wait, says Satan, look, he did it again. And Jesus said, yeah, I paid for that too. Over and over again, every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, Jesus stands next to you reminding God the Father, I already paid for that one too. No charge can stick to you because the judge, who is God the Father, has already made up his mind, and it's in your favor. And God the Son, your defense attorney, constantly points out that he already paid for all your sins. He already took care of everything bad you have or will ever do. As a result, you're kind of like this guy named John Gotti. I don't know if you remember him from the 80s. He was the the father of the Gambino crime family. Three separate times, he was brought to court for serious charges like murder, and he clearly did it. Guy was horrible. And yet he could never be uh, found guilty. He He was always acquitted time after time after time. The news media called him the Teflon Don because no charge could stick with him. Guess what? You are coded in Teflon in the court of God. No charge can stick to you. Never again. You can never be found guilty because your father, the judge, has already declared that you are just and Jesus, the son of God, has already paid for everything you will ever do bad. No charge can ever stick to you. You need never fear any accusation. You need never fear any guilt. No accusation could ever separate you from the love of God. A third question that Paul is going to flesh out. This is the big one starting in verse 35. This is really the the heart of the matter. Paul asks, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long? We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now Paul's getting at the heart of the matter. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? This is the question of eternal security. What can separate us from the saving love of God? What can remove our salvation? What can annul our relationship with God? Is there anything that can? Well, Paul begins by looking at persecution. Can intense persecution for our faith, when we suffer because of our allegiance with Jesus Christ, can that intense persecution separate us from God? That's a a question that lots of people have asked. When you are in pain, when you are suffering, often God feels very distant from you. In the midst of your suffering, you may feel like God has rejected you. Actually, the quote there is from Psalm 44. The psalmist felt like God had rejected him. That's why Paul quotes him. The psalmist looked at this persecution that was coming into his life because of his faithfulness to God and concludes, man, God must have rejected me. But Paul says no. Paul says no. Actually, persecution is not a a form of separation from God. It's not something to fear. Actually, persecution is an honor. Persecution for your faith is actually a gift from God. 
When you suffer because of your allegiance to Jesus Christ, rather than telling you that God is far from you, it actually tells you that God is very close, that he's right there with you, that he is drawing you near to him, that he will protect you and watch over you. That's what Paul concludes here. He says that when we suffer for our faith, it is God's gift because through that suffering, we overwhelmingly conquer our enemies. Overwhelmingly conquer. In the Greek, it means literally overkill. It means that God doesn't just give you victory. He, get, he annihilates your enemy through persecution. When you suffer, it is a sign of their complete and utter defeat. It's proof to you that you will conquer, that nothing will ever stop you, that nothing will ever get in the way of your relationship with God. I love reading some of the ancient martyrs, men and women who gave up their lives um, as a result of following Christ. There's one in particular that I've read a number of times, Ignatius, uh, one of the elders of the church of Antioch, late first century. He's preaching the gospel and the Romans don't like that and so they arrest him. And they take him to the Colosseum in Rome and they throw him to the lions. And on the way, he writes, I am writing to all the churches and I enjoin all that I am dying willingly for God's sake. If only you do not prevent it. I beg you, do not do me an untimely kindness. He doesn't want to be released. He doesn't want anybody springing him from jail. He wants to go to the lions. Allow me to be eaten by the beasts, which are my way of reaching to God. I am God's wheat, and I am to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts, so that I may become the pure bread of Christ. Ignatius understood persecution is not something that drives me away from God. It's something that draws me close to him. It's a gift, an honor from God, because when I suffer for my faith, it proves that I win. It proves that I'm with God, and so I will win. Our enemies may harm us for a little while now. They may even take away our physical lives, but they can do no permanent damage to us. Persecution is just proof that you are with God, that you will spend eternity with him. Okay, so persecution cannot separate you from the saving love of God. It actually just draws you closer to him. Now Paul wants to step back and he wants to ask, what about other circumstances. Maybe you're not being persecuted right now. What about other circumstances in life? Are there any circumstances that could separate you from the saving love of God? Paul answers that question in verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has stepped back and now he is looking at every possible circumstance. Every possible situation. Is there any person? Is there any creature? Is there anything? Is there anything in life that could separate you from the love of God? Paul concludes, no. There is absolutely nothing that could separate you from God. But what I really want you to notice is the end of that list. One of the most important phrases I think you'll find anywhere in the Bible, end of the list, Paul's catch-all, he says, nor any other created thing. What is included in that phrase? Anything other than God. Anything other than God, which means it includes you. It includes you. You cannot separate yourself from the love of God because you are a created thing. It is not within our range of options to separate ourselves from God. I can't walk away from God even if I want to because I'm a created thing. 
It's not, my, it's not within my power to separate myself from God. There is nothing I can do, nothing I can say, nothing I can think that could ever cost me my salvation, that could ever separate me from God because I'm a created thing. It's not in my power to do so. Now, let me make this really concrete. Let me drive this home. Let's say that years from now, I begin to, to give into a pattern of sin and that sin leads me further and further into darkness and evil and, and at some point in the future, I have an affair. I, I cheat on my wife. Now, if I do that, that's gonna have horrible consequences for me and for my family, but according to Paul, it will not cost me my salvation. Let's say I go even further off the wagon and I start to use drugs and in a drug-induced stupor, I murder someone. That's going to have even worse consequences, but it will still not cost me my salvation. Now, let's say I go even further off the wagon and I begin to give in to doubt and I decide after some amount of time that I just don't believe this thing anymore. And I walk away from the faith. I publicly deny Christianity. I become an atheist. Still, it will not cost me my salvation because I'm a created thing. I cannot forfeit my salvation. That's not within my power. That's not within my ability. As a created thing, I cannot give my salvation back to God even if I wanted to. God doesn't accept returns. You didn't buy your salvation, so you can't return it. There is nothing that you can do to forfeit or give up or give God back your salvation. There's nothing. You cannot lose salvation. It's a beautiful truth we call eternal security. Now, some of you may be thinking, Blake, wait a minute. You may object. Blake, no true believer could ever commit those kind of sins. No true believer could ever do anything that bad. I really wish that was true. But then I read the Bible and I come across guys like David, clearly a believer, had an affair, and then murdered the guy. And then I see guys like Solomon, totally turned his back on the one true God and worshiped other gods, embraced other religions. And then I see the believers in Corinth who, among many sins, regularly committed prostitution. And yet all of them are believers. Those sins have horrible consequences in their life. It's easy to see that, read their stories. Those sins have horrible consequences in their life, and yet they do not cost them salvation. Nothing can. Nothing can forfeit your salvation. You are eternally secured. That's what eternal security is about. Once saved, always saved. No matter what you do, no matter what happens in the future, you can never give up, lose, forfeit your salvation. It is absolutely eternally secure. Now, there's a lot of genuine godly believers who disagree with that. There's a lot of really good denominations out there that teach the gospel, but do not agree with eternal security. You may have grown up in one of those churches. Uh, You heard the gospel, but from a very young age, you heard that if you do something really bad or you walk away from the faith, you will forfeit or lose your salvation. I want to prove to you, I want to give you uh, my best reasons that I know of for why that's not the case, for why your salvation is absolutely eternally secure. There's a number of passages I I could take you to, a lot of passages that go through that. I'm just going to give you what I think are the best ones. They've been the most help to me personally, or if I'm encouraging someone who is fearful of losing their salvation, this is where I go. So let me give you my list, my top five list or top four list of best passages to go to. The first is this passage we're in right now. I don't think there's any better passage you could possibly go to in scripture to prove that your salvation is secure. It is not within your ability, your power, your authority as a created being to forfeit or give up or lose your salvation. That's Paul's point in Romans 8. That's the first place I take people. 
But here's, here's the second reason that I believe in eternal security. I believe that our salvation is secure because the Bible reveals that salvation is an irrevocable change of nature. When you are saved, the moment you believe the gospel, you are changed. You are changed in such a radical way that it can never be undone. There's an irrevocable change of state or existence that happens in you that can never be undone. I see that from Peter. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 3, as he's describing our salvation, he says it this way, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Think about those words. Think about that metaphor. When you believe the gospel, you were born again. Birth is a permanent change of state. You can't be unbirthed. You can't undo your birth. It's done. It's permanent. You might die in the future, but you can't undo birth. Same with your salvation. You can't undo your salvation because it is a permanent change of state. Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Your salvation, when you believe the gospel, you were recreated. You can't uncreate something. Once it's created, it's forever created. That is a permanent change of state. When you were saved, you became a new creation. That can never be undone. Your salvation is secure because by its very nature, it is an irrevocable change of your existence that can never be undone. That's the second reason I hold to eternal security. Third reason I hold to eternal security is because the New Testament reveals that our salvation was sealed by the Holy Spirit. The passage to go to there, there's a few different ones, but Ephesians 1, 13 to 14 is the best place to go to. It says, in him, that is Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? To to us, that doesn't mean a lot. We don't really understand seals in the ancient world. So let me fill you in on a little background. Uh, This idea of sealing something was really significant in Paul's age. Seals were something that were reserved just for the very powerful in society, for kings. Kings had seals made. And a, a seal was a ring or a stamp that was carved out of stone with intricate designs. And it was unique for every ruler. Every ruler had his own stamp. And when that ruler wanted to issue a decree or a law or a proclamation, he would write it on a scroll, roll the scroll up, seal it with wax or soft clay, and then press his ring into it. And once he pressed his ring into it, once he imprinted his sign, his symbol on that seal, the only person who could break the seal, open the scroll and read it was someone who carried the authority of the king. You had to be as powerful as the king or even more powerful if you were to open the scroll. If you weren't and you opened it, the penalty was instant execution. You were put to death on the spot. Game over. God's point here in Ephesians 1 is you have been sealed. You were sealed by God himself. The imprint of his seal is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has imprinted God's mark upon you. And so as a result, the only person who can break that seal and remove you from God's family is God himself. And he's never going to do it. You can't do it. You cannot remove yourself from salvation. It's impossible because you don't have the authority or power to undo God's seal. You're secure. Because you've been sealed. That's the third reason I hold to eternal security. Fourth reason I hold to eternal security 
It's because the Bible reveals that our salvation is based on God's choice of us, not our choice of him. Number of passages we could go to. John 10 is the best. 27 to 29, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I want you to notice, why are you one of Jesus's sheep? It's not because you chose Jesus. It's not because you chose to be in his fold. No, it's because God chose you. God the father chose you to be a sheep of Jesus. Often when we think about salvation, we think of salvation as this moment when we choose God, when we choose to say yes to God, to believe his gospel. Well, that's important. That choice matters. That choice is important, that moment that you believe the gospel. But that choice is not what salvation is built upon. Your salvation is not based upon that moment you chose God. It's based on a different choice a choice that God made in eternity past. When God chose you by name, he elected you as an individual to be saved. That's what your salvation is based upon, God's choice, his choice of you in eternity past. And so if at some point in the future you decide, I no longer want to choose God, I'm done choosing God, I'm going to choose another God or no God at all, God says, "Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, The salvation thing was never based on your choice of me. It was based on my choice of you. I chose you knowing everything you would ever do. I still freely chose you in love and grace. So you can think anything you want. You're still saved. You're still my sheep because it's not based on your choice. It's based on my choice. We are in the family of God because of God's choice, not ours. It's based upon what God has done, not what we have done. Our salvation is secure because it was never based upon what we do or believe or think. It's always been based on God's choice. He chose us. That's actually why you have believed the gospel. Your choice follows his. You end up embracing the gospel because in eternity past, God chose you by name. That's why you believed. As a result, you are forever in God's family. You combine all these reasons together, and in my opinion, this seals the deal. This is it. This proves that our salvation is absolutely secure. Once saved, always saved. If you have believed the gospel, then you are absolutely, eternally safe in the hands of God, no matter what you ever do. There's nothing so bad that you could ever do that it would cost you your salvation. You will spend eternity with God because you are safe in his hands. He will allow nothing to separate you from him. That's that's his third promise. As we put these promises back up, what God is promising in verses 31 to 39 is that he will allow nothing to separate you from him, not even you. You can't walk away if you want to. Nope. God made the choice. Your salvation is based on his choice. What God chooses, God gets. And so you're saved, now and forever. That's the beautiful truth of eternal security. God wants you to know that truth. He wants you to believe that truth and have confidence and peace through that truth. He tells us in 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know. He doesn't want you to doubt. He wants you to know that you have eternal life, that you are secure, that there's nothing that you can ever do that will forfeit your salvation. Eternal security is not arrogance. It's not presumption. It is God's gift. He wants you to have peace. He doesn't want you to live in fear and insecurity and worry. He wants you to know once and for all, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you have believed the gospel, you are and will forever be saved. 
He wants you to know that and believe that. So let me leave you with the same application that I did two weeks ago. I want you to memorize these promises from God. I want you to memorize them. Two weeks ago, I encouraged you to memorize verses 28 through 30. Uh, let me encourage you to review those memory verses. Work back through those um, with a friend, roommate, spouse. Um, work back through verses 28 through 30 so that these verses really sink in and now add the end of the passage in as well. Verses 38 through 39, I think those are two of the best verses you'll find anywhere in the Bible, well worth your time. Memorize those. Memorize these promises that God has given you. Memorize them so that you can use them to encourage yourself during dark times. When you are struggling, when you feel fearful, when you feel alone, when you feel worthless, when you feel guilty or ashamed, quote these verses to yourself. These verses are God's remedy to you. They are God's medicine for fear. This is how God fixes you. When you are worried, when you are afraid, God wants you to just quote, there, there they are. These promises are God's remedy for fear. So memorize them, let them sink deeply into your heart, and when you struggle, repeat them to yourself. Use them to encourage yourself. Use them also to encourage other people. These are great words of encouragement if you're speaking to a friend or a family member, a neighbor who is struggling. Most of us will have some opportunity at some point in life to sit down with another person who is fearful that they have either lost their salvation or were never saved to begin with. They've done something so bad or they feel so distant from God that they have concluded that they've either forfeited their salvation or were never saved to begin with. You can use this to help them. In that situation... You sit down with somebody who, again, they're afraid that they've either lost their salvation or were never saved to begin with because of something they've done or something they feel. Always start with the gospel. That's, that's always the first thing to do. Go to the gospel because ultimately you, you can't know whether they're saved or not. That's between them and God. So go to the gospel. Rehearse the facts of the gospel. Talk to them about what Jesus has done. That Jesus, God's own son, came to earth took all of our sins upon himself, died in our place, and then rose from the dead, conquering sin and death on our behalf, and now offers to every person the free gift of eternal life. If you will simply believe it, you have it. You, if you believe in Jesus, that he died for you and rose from the dead, you receive eternal life. Share those facts with them and then ask them, is that something you have believed? Is that something that at some point in your life you've said, yes, I agree with that? If they say, no, that's new to me, or I've never quite understood that, or I still don't understand that, then ask them, what is it that right now is keeping you from believing that truth? And talk to them about their objections. Maybe there's some things you can help them through. If, if all of a sudden they tell you, yeah, okay, that makes sense, I buy that, then boom, it just happened. The person has eternal life. It's like the best conversation that's ever happened in your life. You just led somebody to eternal life. They have the gift if they believe. If you're talking to them and they say, yeah, at some point in my life, you know, years ago when I was in college, when I was in high school, I, I did believe that. But now I've done this really bad thing or I just feel so far from God. Well, if they have believed that message, then use Romans 8. Take them to the passage we studied this morning and share with them the security that God wants to give them in Christ. Help them to understand there's nothing, nothing you could ever do that could forfeit your salvation. There's nothing that could ever, you could ever do that could separate you from God. If you have believed the gospel, then you are absolutely secure. Share these promises with them. Share these verses with them. Help them to know that peace and security because God wants them to live in peace. If they're a believer, God wants them to feel and know the security that is theirs in Christ. That's the only way to live a whole and healthy life. Really, they can't get back to obeying God until they have security. When you're consumed by fear, you're not walking with God. 
So help them embrace and know the security of Christ so they can begin to walk with Christ again. Use these verses, these promises. Memorize them so you can use them for yourself. Memorize them so you can use them for your brothers and sisters, for people around you. These are God's gift to us, these precious verses that give us the one and only true lasting source of security in this world. Let's thank God that he's given us a reason to be secure. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these passages. Thank you so much for these promises. Lord, we confess to you that we are in desperate need of security. There is no security around us in the things of this world, nothing that lasts, nothing that we can count on except you. Thank you so much that you have given us security freely out of love, out of grace. You have given us security in Christ. Thank you so much for for the gift of him that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. And right now, Father, we just want to lift up anyone in this room who has not yet received that good news, who has not yet trusted in Jesus as their savior. Please, Lord, let this be the morning when they believe. Please open their eyes to understand that eternal life is an absolutely free gift, that it's not based on anything they do. It's not based on any of their works or their merit. It's based completely and only upon what Jesus has already done on their behalf. Please help them to believe that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And for all of us who have believed that good news, Lord, I pray that this morning that we would walk out of here with a renewed and growing sense of confidence and peace. Please, Lord, help us to believe that our salvation is secure. Help us to believe that we are safe in your arms, even as we struggle with sin, even when we struggle with doubt. Still, we are safe in your arms because salvation was never based on anything we do. It was always based upon your promises, your faithfulness to us. I pray, Father, that you would grow us in peace, that through that peace we would then step out in radical obedience and love, that we would reach out to our neighbors with this good news that can be theirs through Jesus Christ. I pray that we would do amazing, bold things for Christ because of the peace and security we have in him. Thank you, Father, that you grant us this gift of peace in a world without peace. Thank you that you have given us security through Christ. Help us to enjoy it, know it, believe it, and share it. In his name, for his honor and glory, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.